Welcome to the Strong Mamas Podcast, where we're talking about our fitness and food choices as moms in real life and in light of our faith as Christ followers. I'm your host, Megan Dahlman, and together we'll be exploring what it means to be a healthy, strong mama in the middle of a culture that's obsessed with vanity. This podcast is all about helping and equipping you to take better care of yourself and the ones you love. Hey friend, welcome back to the Strong Mamas podcast. We're so glad that you're back with us today. And Sky is back in the room with me. Hey everybody. I know you guys are excited to have him back. He's over there yawning. I'm not sure what's up with that. It's that mid-morning, you know, just kind of coffee's done, getting a little droopy. We got to get you some jumping jacks or something. I'll power through. I know this is going to be an exciting podcast. (laughs) Today, you guys, we are doing an Ask Me Anything episode, which is kind of like a grab bag. So we're not just focusing on one topic today, we're gonna focus on a whole lot of topics. So I bet you'll be able to resonate with some of these questions today. We're covering exercise, nutrition, and even some mindset questions, but keep in mind that these might trigger some of your own questions. So hold on to those and send them my way. You can either direct message me on Facebook or Instagram. Or you can connect with me in the Strong Mamas Squad Facebook group too. And I will have the links to all of those things in the show details so that you can make sure to connect with me. Now, before we get into your guys' questions, I do want to thank you once again for some amazing reviews. We had some great reviews this week. And in fact, we're going to share a couple of them with you. First of all, what did B. Jackson 18 say, Scott? She said, what a blessing this is. I came across this podcast kind of by accident, and now that I'm listening, I can't stop. I rode my bike and listened to the depression and anxiety episode and was so into it. When I got home, I listened again and took notes. That's awesome. (laughs) I'm starting the macro series, and I'm excited to see what kind of things I can pick up. I'm sure it'll be a lot. Thank God for this podcast. That's awesome. I'm just picturing you guys listening during your workout, on bike rides, on your commute, if you're back to commuting, while you're folding laundry, whatever it might be. It's kind of fun to know that you're learning in all these different environments. Also, Lindsay Liu, I love that. She said, this is my favorite podcast. I listen often, but especially when I'm starting to slide back into old habits and need encouragement to keep up with all the habits that Megan has taught me. I love that, by the way. What a cool platform that we have now with podcasts. You can have a coach in your ear reminding you of the habits that are the most important, the things to do on a regular basis, and just helping keep you focused on the things that really matter. And hopefully that's what the Strong Mamas podcast has become for you guys, just having that coach in your ear. Now listen, not only are we in your earbuds, But you also have a wealth of information at your fingertips on the Strong Mamas website, too. If you have not spent any time on the Strong Mamas website, make sure you do. There's lots to check out. You're going to find hundreds of blog posts that I've written. For years, I was producing a a new blog post every single week. It's kind of crazy. There's some serious binge reading that you could do there. Um, Even full workouts that you can follow along with, a bunch of meal plans, healthy recipes, and more information about the Strong Mamas coaching program too, which is where you can coach with me and take all of this to the next level. So we're going to link the website in the show details, but you can just type in Strong Mamas into your Google search bar or head to strongmamas.com and that's strong-mamas, M-O-M-M-A-S.com. Okay, are you ready for question time? I'm ready. Let's do it. Okay, so last week we wrapped up the macro series, and for the last four episodes, we've been taking a much closer look at protein, fat, carbs, and we even tied a bow on the whole series and talked about alcohol, which was a pretty awesome final episode, if I may say so myself. (laughs) We had fun on that one. But I had asked a bunch of you guys in the Strong Mama Squad Facebook group 
If there was anything that you hoped I would cover in that episode on alcohol that I didn't, and I didn't want to leave you hanging, okay? I just don't want to leave anything undone. So you you did have a few questions that I wanted to circle back and make sure that we touched on. So we're going to take this episode to work through those questions specifically about alcohol first, and then we're going to get into a bunch of your other questions too, all right? So... Let's start with those alcohol-specific questions. By the way, if you have not listened to last week's episode, the macro series episode on alcohol and drinking, make sure that you go listen to that. Very, very informative, really helpful. But I know that we left some gaps undone. So what was Jen's question here, Scott? So Jen asks, I'd love to know if different body types need to approach it differently, like we do carbs. So the question is here, like, do we need to approach drinking differently based on what your somatotype is? So whether you're an endomorph, a mesomorph, or an ectomorph, and if you have no idea what I'm talking about, we did do an entire series on somatotypes last summer. Here's the thing with caloric beverages of any kind. Regardless of whatever your body type is, they are considered a splurge. These are food items that are not meant to be part of your normal nutrient intake. And so it doesn't really matter if if you're an endomorph versus an ectomorph, you don't really treat it any differently because each of the body types need to be treating caloric beverages of any kind like a splurge. For an endomorph that tends to be more sensitive to carbohydrates and sugar in general, yes, that is what is in alcohol especially if you're doing, if you're drinking wine, if you're drinking a mixed drink or beer. It's just what we learned last week was that it's not just straight alcohol. It's combined with other things and that is carbohydrates. So it is going to behave in your body more like a carbohydrate. And what we've learned from carbohydrates is that yes, some body types are slightly more sensitive to carbohydrate intake. However, If you just treat drinking as a splurge opportunity, it's going to kind of take care of itself and you don't need to be like, this is my post-workout drink. (laughs) Cause that, I mean, that's the thing with carb intake as an endomorph is that your body is going to handle it a little bit better after a good workout. But it, it doesn't mean like, oh, because I just worked out, worked out, this carb is fine. Like it's still considered a splurge. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right. So I think that makes sense that it's a splurge, which kind of leads to the next question from Sarah, who asks, if I have two glasses of wine or a cocktail or whatever alcohol beverage, is that two splurges or is it just one? So the thing with splurges is that we need to look at a splurge as an entire splurge opportunity. This is a moment where you're deviating from your healthy eating habits and you're taking the opportunity to slow down and enjoy something else that doesn't really fall within the categories of the healthy eating habits. And so I want you to see it as a full opportunity. So for you, that might just be one drink or it could be two drinks, it could be two drinks and a dinner. But here's the thing with all types of splurges and every splurge opportunity, the number one rule when you are splurging is that you slow down, you eat mindfully, and you're constantly checking in to see how do I feel? Because often when we get to those splurge situations, we're like, well, this is my opportunity to have how much and whatever I want, kind of, but you still need to consume in moderation and balance. And so often you could get to that splurge opportunity where sure, two glasses of wine, that I would say is just one splurge opportunity, but how does that second glass of wine make you feel? Do you feel over consumed? Do you start to feel the effects of the alcohol? Is that going to start to affect your other food choices? Like that's what really matters. And that's what always matters with splurges is that you pay attention to how it's starting to make you feel. Yeah, I think I view it akin as to a dessert splurge. Right. So if I have two cookies, I'm not necessarily going to think of that as two different splurges while I'm sitting there. 
but I also don't want to sit down and eat the entire box of cookies while I'm sitting there. Right. Because that's obviously not being moderate, but I think it's similar in a way, as you're saying, that it is one splurge situation, even if it involves a couple of different things. Right. And this is where we have to start sidestepping away from that diet mentality, because up to this point, it's kind of all put into these categories of like, well, how much? Like, how many calories does it equal? Like, one splurge is equal to 300 calories. If it goes up to 600, that's two splurges. Like, no, 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 no. That's the mindset that has always gotten us in the in a bad spot to begin with. So I want you to see each time that you sit down where you're eating outside of your healthy eating habits as the one opportunity and you just see it different than calories, different than what it's adding up to. And, and I kind of feel like I'm rambling now a little bit, but hopefully that makes sense. I mean... Well, I think the next question is going to help layer on top of this as well right. when we're talking about splurges and related to alcohol because Liz asked how many glasses of wine per week can I have and still make progress yes now that goes back to the splurge because if you want to have progress if you want to see progress that comes down to eating on point or following your healthy eating habits 90% of the time and so that usually equates to about three or four splurge opportunities throughout the course of the week. That could be two glasses of wine. If that splurge is, you know, you're being slow about it, you're paying attention to how you feel, you don't feel like you're over consuming and you're able to stop and say, that's it, I'm satisfied, I'm good. But that's still within the category of, of being in progress mode if over the course, if those, if if the glasses of wine that you drink are the one are the few splurges that you really truly want to have, those are the splurges that you desire, you can absolutely still make progress. If your overall splurge opportunities are just three or four total per week. So I think what you're saying is that we should be really careful not to get caught up in our splurges with counting the calories of our splurges, with counting what those effects are going to be. We need to be focused on the amount of times a week we're making those decisions more than what's within them. Absolutely. Yeah. The amount of times per week, but then also how those are making us feel. Because I think often when it comes to splurge situations, we do, our brains do shut off and we're like, I'll just go hog wild and not even think about how this is making me feel, especially with alcohol. We'll just drink and we might be in a group of people where everybody is grabbing another drink or, and if we were to stop and think, well, yeah, this is kind of all wrapped up in one splurge opportunity, but how do I feel? How, how am I starting to feel? Am I going to be happy with my choices to have more? Like, yeah, it's allowed, but do I like how this is making me feel? And if you can honestly answer that question anytime you splurge, whether that's an alcohol splurge, whether it's, you know, a plate of bread splurge or like <laughs> cupcakes, whatever, it's pausing and saying, do I like this? Is this something that actually satisfies me? And how, how am I going to feel? Well, I think you accidentally segued here a little bit while talking about a plate full of bread because <laughs> the next question comes from Brittany and it's about carb cycling. So now we're shifting gears. I think those were like all the questions we had about alcohol. So yes, let's shift gears and move to some more nutrition questions. Okay, go ahead. All right. So Brittany's question, carb cycling, is it a good alternative to something like keto? Allowing carbs still, but only a couple days a week and after certain exercise. Have you ever heard of carb cycling? Yes. A little bit? A little bit. What do you, I mean, when you hear that, what does it sound like carb cycling is? Oh, it's the idea of being really mindful about when you're having carbs and not having them all the time, but having them at distinct times. Sure, sure. So yeah, I mean, carb cycling can be a good option, especially if you feel like you are more of that endomorph body type and you feel particularly sensitive to carbohydrates. Maybe you know that you have some insulin sensitivity 
or you've got some body composition and maybe and some performance goals. So you've got some serious goals. Carb cycling can be an option. So here's the thing. When someone is following a really low calorie or a really low carb diet, I would put keto in there. I would put any low carb diet. These low intakes of both total energy and total carbohydrate energy can reduce your metabolic rate. Your, it can also reduce your thyroid hormone activity. It can reduce your sympathetic nervous system activity and so much more. So in other words, if you follow a low carb diet for too long, your weight loss efforts could plateau. And this is where carb cycling can enter in. So carb cycling essentially tricks the body by giving it higher calorie and carb intakes frequently enough so that it won't ever get too close to that starvation mode, but infrequently enough so that fat loss can continue on. True carb cycling can get pretty strategic and actually really tricky. And I don't recommend going there for most people of trying to get really strategic about it because that's a possibility. So would you say this is along the lines of our conversations in the past about advanced eating versus being a beginning eater? And this is something that isn't necessarily bad, but it's something that you should only be taking on when you're really an advanced eater. Absolutely. Because, and I think I even mentioned on that episode about the different eating skills Carb cycling is definitely an advanced eating skill. You should, there's, you have no business trying to cycle your carbohydrates if you're not already solid with eating your pros, your protein and produce with every meal. If you don't have your healthy fat intake balanced really well, if you're not really aware of where your carbohydrates are coming from and you're doing a great job with packaged and processed foods. I mean, all the basics. And often for most people, they never have to get to the carb cycling. If they just truly look at the basics and be like, you know what? I'm not as good on the basics as I thought. Let me just make those more on point and that could be enough. But yes, carb cycling can be an option if someone is more of an advanced eater. So It's essentially toggling between extremely low carb days and then fairly high carb days. And these high carb days are called refeeds. You can do different styles of refeeds. So you can do infrequent, really big refeeds. So maybe once every week or two. So maybe you're someone that's following like a really strict low carb diet And one day out of every 14 days, you really, you do a really big refeed. It ends up being a really, really high carb day. And that kind of kicks your body into like, whoa, what? (laughs) Spaghetti and French bread. Yeah. What is going on? And then it it tricks it and, and reminds it like, you're not starving. Don't worry. Another way to go about it is frequent, more moderate refeeds. So these could be like once every three or four days. So you could have some like really low carb days and then like this refeed placed in there, but not quite so high carb, maybe not so intense. Now, if you're curious about trying this on yourself and you you know that you're not a beginner eater, you're more of an advanced, like intermediate advanced eater, I suggest that you start simple. Okay, so like I said, make sure that you have that baseline of regular meals that emphasize eating lots of pros and healthy fats. And then the next step is identify your hardest workout days and just purposefully eat more of the starchier forms of carbohydrates on those days. So you might have like two workouts out of your four of the week, like maybe you work out four days a week and two of those are really, really, really hard. Identify those two and let those two days be the days that you purposefully and strategically have a little bit more carbs than you might normally have. And this is within reason, okay? So keep in mind that with really hard workouts, your hunger cues can be inappropriately amplified and you might accidentally overeat by a long shot. I don't know. If anybody else has ever experienced that, I know I have, especially with like really long runs. 
that can just trigger your hunger cues like crazy. And you or can... if you just lift heavy and do a really hard workout on an yeah. empty stomach. I know my body's just like, give me everything and give it now. Yeah, and you end up having like a lunch that's the size of two lunches. And you're like, well, that backfired. That kind of defeated the purpose. <laughs> so be really selective about this. Like, like go into it knowing exactly how you're going to try this refeed day or basically a higher carbohydrate day. So this could simply look like one piece of whole grain toast at your breakfast, a corn tortilla at your lunch, and maybe a cupped handful of quinoa with dinner. I mean, you gotta decide about this ahead of time. Don't just go into the day and be like, it's my high, it's my carb day, and just go crazy about it. Like that's, it's so not gonna work well. You're not gonna be able to see the progress that you're thinking of if that's how you go about it. All that to say, Brittany, (laughs) carb cycling is an option, but it is more advanced. Check your basics first, make sure that they are in place, and then go about it slow, not extreme, and just keep checking in with yourself and seeing how it feels. Okay, what's our next question, Scott? Well, our next question comes from Michelle. She asks, do you recommend taking supplements such as glucosamine to help heal injuries and to help have overall better workouts? This is a fantastic question. I bet a lot of people are really curious about this. Because, I mean, you know, you walk through Costco and you see all the supplements and you're like, huh, I wonder if that would help. I don't even know. And you always see everybody standing there in the aisle and you think they know what they're doing. But I stand there and I'm just like, B, D, C, A, (laughs) all these different letters. And I'm just like, I don't know. I'm out. Yeah, I'm out. Okay, so glucosamine Glucosamine, it's a type of amino acid. We talked about amino acids more on the protein episode. And it's an amino acid just like glutamine, leucine, ornithine. They all kind of start or end with a lot the of enes. Yeah, because they're aminos. And there are a bunch of amino acids, you guys, um, 12 of them total. Do you remember how many are essential, meaning our bodies can't make them? Oh, this is a pop quiz. Oh, man. Four? Higher. Nine. Nine. I knew it was four or nine. I went with my lower number. Yeah, so there's nine of the amino acids that our bodies cannot produce on their own. We actually have to eat them. Um, But anyway, many amino acids play a major role in collagen formation, which is basically how your tissues repair. So here's the thing. The... The most important thing when it comes to an injury in any time, really, and and making sure that your body is healing and recovering and operating at its absolute best, the most important thing before you start supplementing is just making sure that you're eating well in general. This goes for any supplement. If you have a broken diet, (laughs) you can't fix it by supplementing. You can't fill all the holes with a really terrible, with really terrible eating habits with a bunch of supplements. Don't do that, okay? So make sure you're eating lots of protein, lots of produce, a good balanced intake of healthy fats, and this alone could completely cover your basis and eliminate any need for supplementing. So if you have an injury that your body is trying to heal, if you're just eating really, really well, your injury is going to get it's gonna have the nutrients it needs to recover its best. Okay, but what if I'm already doing all of those things and still feel like I need a little more help? Yeah, you can give yourself an edge, kind of a little leg up on the healing process. So there's certain micronutrients. So these are the micros. We had we just finished the whole series on macros. These are micros. So these are the little guys, but you do need them. I learned in the macro series that it's not the size of the nutrient. These aren't the little ones. They're just the ones we need less of. Thank you. Actually, that is 100% accurate. Good yes, job. I remembered something. Two points, Scott. <laughs> okay, so the ones that are really especially helpful for injuries and healing from injuries are... We've got a couple of vitamins here. So vitamin A, vitamin B, vitamin C, and vitamin D. So those four, so A, B, C, and D. Oh, that's easy to remember. <laughs> but isn't there a bunch of different Bs? There are a bunch of different Bs. That's where I get confused. I know. There's a bunch of Bs. But in general, all the Bs. All the Bs. All the Bs. And then in addition to the A, B, C, Ds, 
Um, you've got other minerals like calcium, copper, iron, magnesium, manganese, and zinc. These are all really important for injury recovery. Now, something that's really interesting, vitamin E might actually slow healing. So it might be helpful to avoid any sort of like vitamin E supplements while you're injured and trying to recover. So, so A, B, C, D, but not E. But not E. Yeah. Okay, and then also we get into the amino acids. So supplemental amino acids can powerfully affect the healing process from an injury. And when the body is under stress, the ones that are particularly helpful are arginine and glutamine. And these two amino acids really help to speed up healing. Now, glucosamine is the one that you're asking about. It really doesn't do much for speeding up injury time. Glucosamine is something that is helpful for more of a long-term health of your collagen tissues throughout your body, just chronically, like over time. But as far as like the acute injury healing process, glucosamine doesn't do a whole lot of good. It's the arginine and glutamine, and there's another one called HBP, HBD that actually helps too. So, meh. I mean, I don't think the glu glucosamine would hinder <laughs> your healing like the vitamin E does. But when you get injured, don't run out and get a bunch of glucosamine and assume that it's helping. And I know the other side of your question too was, is it helpful in general just from recovering quickly from workouts? Mm, maybe, but not as much as just eating really healthy. Yeah, and I think it's good to kind of summarize your whole opinion on supplements in general because I know we get a lot of questions about supplements on a mm -hmm. regular basis. And it really is that, yes, they're probably not going to hurt you. Right. But if you're eating the right things already, there's going to be pretty minimal benefit for most supplementing. Yeah. and Except I, for fish oil. Right. Because like I always say, balanced healthy fats. And one way to really balance out your healthy fats is taking your fish oil. And that's extremely important for healing from injuries is making sure that your body's inflammation levels are not all out of whack and having balanced healthy fats is really really important for that so fish oil really helps but apart from fish oil like maybe just taking a regular multivitamin unless you're a really extreme athlete that's having some big difficulties recovering you know you're required to train day after day you know you're in the tour de france like would you benefit from these like high level recovery supplements? Probably at that level, but most of us, we're just better off turning our attention and our focus on making sure our food is good. So our next question comes from Vainly, who asks, should I run fasted or should I eat something before my morning run? And if so, what are good options? I normally run three miles early in the morning and do my weightlifting after lunch. So she's doing two a days. That's impressive. Not always recommended. I mean, depending on how difficult, how intense these workouts are, if you are consistently doing two a days, basically two workouts in one day in separate occasions, your nutrition really does need to be on point. But when it comes to eating before that early morning run, or if you have an early morning workout of any kind, everybody is a little bit different. Some people prefer to work out or run on an empty stomach. Some people can't, like they feel a little bit nauseous. They might get a little bit of heartburn from that. I know you can't work out on an empty stomach. I know, that's why I am very jealous of people that can work out regardless of if they have an empty or a full stomach because if I try to work out on an empty stomach, just like you said, I feel terrible. I feel lethargic. I feel ill. It's just no bueno for me. And this kind of comes down to someone's like conditioning too, like how how great of shape they're in as well, because someone might be in, in great shape and they can kind of work out whether they have an empty stomach, whether they ate a few hours ago or whether they just ate. Their body has kind of adapted to 
being able to perform at most environments. What are you suggesting here? <sighs> You're out of shape, Scott. <laughs> Here's the thing. You don't necessarily need the energy from that pre-early morning run meal. Especially if you're focusing on your post-run nutrition, it really matters what you're eating when you come back from that tough run, especially if it's a hard run. If you do choose to run in a fasted state or work out early in a fasted state, just make sure that you eat something as soon as you return or within that first hour after finishing your run. And that is going to affect your energy for the next run because that's how it works. You can't like, like what you're eating immediately is not get, giving you necessarily the energy you're using in that moment. If you do choose to eat something, make sure that it's really small and easily digestible. A good rule of thumb is pick something that is a carb and a protein. So those two, not fat. Fat takes a little bit longer to digest and some proteins take a lot of time to digest too. And honestly, some carbs that are really high in fiber, like broccoli <laughs> can take a while to digest. So you don't want something sitting in your gut that your blood is having to try to work on digesting. So I suggest just like half of a banana and maybe the egg white of a hard boiled egg. Like those two little, like it's just like a mini meal. It's not much, but it, it would probably do the trick to settle your stomach and make it so you don't feel like you're working out empty. And then just experiment with it. Make decisions on purpose. So say, okay, for the next week, I'm going to have this little mini meal, like the exact same mini meal before my first run. And I'm going to notice a couple things. I'm going to jot down and see how I feel. So I want you to notice your energy levels during your run, your energy for the rest of the day, and even your energy for that afternoon's weightlifting session. I also want you to notice what is sitting best in your stomach. Do you need just enough to take the hunger edge off, but not so much that you feel your stomach? Like try to notice all, th all these things. So do the same thing for a full week. And then the next week, run on an empty stomach and try to compare the two and just see what seems to work better. Because like I said first, everybody is a little bit different. All right, so those are the nutrition questions that we received. So we're gonna switch gears and talk real quick about some exercise questions that you had. And I have to insert in here, Scott just left. <laughs> it's now just me. He looked at me and he's like, I had a call I totally forgot about for work. I have to go. All right, I guess that's that. So now for the rest of this episode, you get just me. Let's go back to exercise questions. Now, Natalie had a fantastic question. She said her shoulder has been bugging her. And she asks, what are some exercises or stretches that I can do when my shoulder is hurting to keep it moving without completely stopping all exercise? I can hold a plank. I can row with my normal weight load and even hold weights while squatting. But holding anything up on my shoulder, doing a shoulder press, and even extending it while doing like seal jacks and jumping jacks, it all makes it hurt. This is a fairly normal issue of developing some form of shoulder pain when you begin weightlifting or maybe at some point during your weight training history. Our shoulder joints, our shoulder girdles are very complex. And if any one of those moving pieces is not coordinated perfectly and you're asking it to operate a lot and maybe with a lot of load, something can kind of break down. Something can become a problem. Usually the problem that, it, that happens is some form of shoulder impingement, just kind of some pain right across the top of the shoulder joint, right in almost like pushing into just the tippy top of your shoulder. Sometimes it's more on the front, which is more of a biceps tendonitis. And those types of pains really come from the pushing. So if you're doing a lot of pushing or overhead pressing, you can develop some of these kind of tendonitis-y feeling issues. And that's usually what it is. It's some form of tendonitis, which is just some inflammation of your tendon. 
So the most important thing is that we got to re- we've got to reduce that inflammation. We got to get it down closer to resting levels so that we get the pain reduced. So lots of ice is really important. And we also need to make sure that we're avoiding the aggravating activity. So if pushing or pressing, if you've been able to pinpoint like, man, that hurts, don't do that. Or at least don't do it with heavy weights. So we can dramatically decrease the amount of weight that you've been using. Let's say you've been trying to push 20 pounds overhead. Let's drop it down to like cut it in half. Let's drop it down to 10 and see if you can do the same motion or the same movement without so much pain. And if you still feel like you're getting some pain with that position, let's just completely avoid that activity altogether until it feels a lot better. And then we need to figure out, okay, maybe there's some surrounding issues here. And most often, especially with pushing motions, the situation is coming from a couple different areas. Usually our postural muscles are not quite as strong as they need to be. So usually your shoulder blade, the muscles between your shoulder blades and kind of at the base of your shoulder blades, they're not as strong as they should be. So that's why the rowing still feels okay because we're not pushing, we're not aggravating those muscles, but we should actually be doing a lot more rowing. It's going to help build up the strength of the muscles that help stabilize your shoulder blade and stabilize that whole joint. Often another issue is having really tight chest muscles that can pose a problem as well. So doing a really good doorway stretch where you're standing in the doorway and you have your arms pressed against the door jam at a comfortable height where you don't feel that pressure or that pain in your shoulder. Make sure that your chest is nice and opened. Another issue can be a lack of thoracic mobility. That just means that your mid spine, like the region of your spine, the region of your backbone that kind of goes from the base of your neck to like your bra strap and a little bit lower than that, that portion of your back is not quite as flexible as it should be. And so doing bent over thoracic rotations, foam rolling your mid back, doing any sort of thoracic mobility exercise is going to be really helpful for you too. And you should be able to do all of those stretches and mobility drills without feeling pain and without having to get into a position that bothers it. Keep doing the movements that do feel good. We gotta, you gotta stay moving. You need to stay active, but modify as much as you can, pulling out the exercises that aggravate it, reducing the weight where it's appropriate, and substituting in more of a mobility exercise or a stretch for exercises that really do hurt it. Okay, let's shift gears one more time. <laughs> We're gonna get into some bigger like faith and kind of mindset questions. And the first one is coming from Jen and she's wondering if BMI, I know you guys have heard about this, the body mass index. She's wondering if the body mass index is a good indicator of having healthy body fat levels or not. She said that all my adult life, I feel like one of my goals has been to be at a healthy BMI. We hear this right from doctors. They're always checking our BMI. Can it be possible to be healthy and fit, but still not quite fit into the healthy BMI standards? I know non-scale victories are super important, but I also know excess body fat can cause health problems. All right, Jen, this is a fantastic question. I bet a lot of people are really wondering about BMI. Like, what's the deal with the BMI? So here's the thing. It's really valuable and helpful to have measurable markers of progress having a goal and having something that you're aiming for. Why? Why is this helpful? It gives you clarity around what you're doing, (laughs) what your action steps should be, and it gives you feedback about whether or not you're on the right track. Now, body mass, or basically how big your body is, mass, right? It can be measured in several different ways. BMI is one way to measure it, body mass index. Body fat percentage is another way to measure it, so more of a body composition test. Doing girth measurements, so taking a, te- a like a tape measure around the size of your limbs and in your waist, that's one way to measure. Another measurement for body mass is just your scale weight, so stepping on a scale. And then just checking your actual dress size, like what size you wear. 
That's another way. And these are all the same types of measures of progress. Okay. All of these types are all measuring basically the same thing, basically how big you are, right? Now, this kind of begs a grander question. And this is where I'm going to get into like that existential part. I'm going to kind of go underneath the layers and dig into this a little bit. The bigger question and something that we have really come to believe in our modern culture is that smaller is better. Is that the case? Like with all of these measures of progress, they're all they're all kind of suggesting that smaller is better. Like having those measurements go down is our, always our goal. And I'm going to say no, not necessarily. Unless being the healthiest version of yourself happens to also mean that your size is a bit smaller. But we really do have to be careful here because we can totally get just stuck or caught up in wanting to see any of these markers of progress go down, okay? Now, BMI is stated to be a measure of body fat based on height and weight. But I'm going to ask, is it actually measuring your body fat? Like, is that what it's actually telling us? Because this is how you get your BMI. You can enter your height and weight, and it spits out a number that places you into one of four different categories. And those categories are underweight, normal, overweight, or obese. And the BMI index or the the body mass index, it's helpful for taking a look at the average of a huge population. Doctors like to collect data and that can be put into like the average of a huge population, right? But when it's coming to you, like when we're talking about you individually, your body, it's really not all that helpful. It does not give you very much information. Now, I took the measurements of a trainer that I know that she's in really, really good shape. She's very strong, very muscular, probably barely any body fat on her body. And I know that she's about five foot seven and she weighs around 155 to 160 pounds, which does not seem like, wow, that's huge. You know, that's pretty average person, but I put those measurements into the BMI calculator and it came back that she's overweight. And I look at her and I'm like, no, 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 no. She is extremely healthy. She probably has barely any body fat on her body. She's very muscular. And so if that trainer, if all she was going by was just this BMI calculator, she'd be like, well, shoot, what I'm doing is wrong. I'm just overweight. I'm too big. Like, that's just unfortunate. So BMI is a terrible measure of where you're actually at and how healthy you actually are, okay? So please do not hang your hat on any of that. If you go to the doctor and they check your BMI and it comes back as overweight, you need to just like put on your blinders, put your fingers in your ears and just go la 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 la. Like just don't don't worry about it, don't listen. Okay, it's not all that helpful, to be honest. Now let's go back to measures of progress. If you know that you do have body fat that you'd like to use, what's a better way to measure your progress than BMI? I suggest having a body fat test done. That can be just like a skin caliper test, or if you have access to like a bod pod, that might be helpful. You could even um, measure your progress by doing girth measurements. Or you can just pay attention to the way your clothes fit. Are your clothes starting to feel looser in certain areas? Keep in mind that as your body becomes more athletic, certain areas might get tighter, okay? But don't stop there. Make sure that you also have other measures of progress. Often body fat loss can be one of the last things to change. And if you keep giving up along the way because you're not noticing your other markers and all you're thinking about is like, man, this fat loss, it's not happening, you're going to constantly feel defeated. Not only do you need some like a measurable marker of progress with your body size, but you need a bunch, like way more markers of progress in another area too. Being able to taste victory in those other areas is what's going to keep you going. And you need something in your life that you can work towards a marker of progress that you can actually achieve and be able to taste that victory. 
right? Because that's going to help you get up and keep going. Okay, final question. Sammy, she has two lovely daughters that are 15 and 14 years old. And she asks, okay, so my girls are both basketball players and my youngest runs cross country and track as well. I've been trying to model your balanced approach to exercise and nutrition, as well as keeping them steeped in the word. You're a good mom, Sammy. (laughs) It's becoming clear that they have different body types. And I'm wondering what age you think it's appropriate to celebrate and educate them on somatotyping. So honestly, yeah, I think understanding the different body types and having an appreciation for how God purposefully designed us all so differently is one major key to overcoming a negative body image. I knew, I know it was for me. It's that way for many of the women I coach of just understanding, like having that light bulb moment of, wow, God didn't design me that way. He designed me this way. And this is so cool. I can stop having to try to be like that because I know that's not how he made me. So understanding the different body types, it truly crushes that comparison game that we play so much. Especially if you're like a mesomorph and you're walking down the street and you see an ectomorph and you're like, oh, I wish my body could be like that. It, it just shuts down those thought processes because you can say, huh, look, she's an ectomorph and I know I'm a mesomorph and we look differently because of that. And it really helps us to see the value and the purpose in all of our different shapes and sizes, to not feel like we're all supposed to look a very specific way. And for young girls, especially girls that are teenagers, I really feel like this is especially important. I want teenage girls to be able to grow up seeing their bodies through God's eyes, especially as they're developing, especially as things are changing and they're learning to accept their shape. It is so valuable for them to start with all the information to not have to wade through those horrible years of wishing their body was a different type or a different size or a different shape and finally when they're in their 30s or 40s or 50s come to realize like oh wow god never made me that way anyway like what how heartbreaking is that So yes, I think it is really helpful for young girls to see the difference in body type. Now, should they try to put themselves in a specific body type? I don't know. And I I feel like that comes down to the spiritual maturity of your girls. You know them best and you know how sensitive they might feel about talking about these things or about how affected they'll feel if they're now in a category. For, for young people, that might be really liberating. For others, it might be really constricting. So I think learning about the different somatotypes as a teenager is a fantastic time to teach them these, like just help them be aware, but don't pigeonhole them, Okay. In other words, I'd recommend against telling them what you think they are. Don't look at your daughter and say, I think you're an endomorph. She just might not be spiritually mature enough to see that as a really, really good thing. She might still see it through the eyes of some lens of negativity. And we all do still, but especially a teenage girl. I want your girls to to know, to understand that we're all different but then let them discover it on their own if they're interested. And I put in the if they're interested because if they're not, if they don't care about their body shape, if they don't care, you know, if you if you get the impression from your girls that it's not that important to them, let's not make it, right? I don't want it to be a bigger thing than it needs to be. Okay. That wraps up all of our questions for the day, you guys. Once again, you come through. You've got some amazing questions for me. It always shows me the maturity level of where you're at. It shows me that you're working through this stuff. You're you're making progress. Just as with any project, any journey, as you go along the way, you're going to be like, huh, I didn't know about that. I didn't realize I had a question about that. I didn't... 
I didn't know that I was going about this side of things or this piece of my journey kind of blindly or absent-mindedly. And just knowing one more component is so, so helpful. Now, I need you guys to come back next week because we are starting a new series all about, you ready for this? Consistency. When I ask you what you struggle with the most, like what, like if, if we could really like tackle one thing and get better at this one thing that would make a big difference in your life, it would be becoming more consistent. Becoming more consistent with choosing healthy foods, with exercising, with taking care of your body in general. And I know that this is so, so hard and I can help you. So you got to come back next week. We're going to start the series on consistency with a whole discussion around accountability and why accountability is crucial for consistency and all the different ways that you can get accountability. And here's a quick hint. They're not all the ways that you might think. Okay, so you're going to have to come back next week and find out more about accountability and how it helps with consistency. All right, you guys, thank you once again so much for joining me and Scott, my MIA co-host there at the half at the halfway mark. He just bounced. <laughs> He'll be back with us next week, though. And once again, if you have time, make sure that you take a moment to go rate the show, leave a review on iTunes. It really, really does help out the show and it gets it in the earbuds of more people that need to learn and want to know this stuff too. So until next week, we'll talk to you later.